Hello, I'm Rick Springfield, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast. Weekly music news for the new music business. From HypeBot, studies shows who wins and loses if music streamers adopt user-centric payments. From Billboard, hate Ticketmaster, love Taylor Swift, politicians are backing new bills to get your vote. And from Music Watch, boomers aren't saving music subscriptions anytime soon. Mm. Darn it. We were hoping they would. <laughs> All right, Jay and I have got a lot to talk about, and we mean and say a lot. So buckle in. It's time to start the podcast right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. been chatting for an hour as we always do. Oh wow, we have. That went by fast. <laughs> it really does. We cover just about everything. We usually talk a little bit about sports, a little bit about the things we're going to talk about, and then we veer off and, yeah. and we were talking about retirement today. Yeah. We are talking all kinds of A little of bit things. on avocados so, and the deer that, yes, that eat them. Yeah. And before we jump in, how about that cool intro from Rick Springfield and uh, you heard a little bit of the song automatic which is he dropped two songs last week last friday um automatic which you just heard part of and she walks with the angels man this guy he just keeps doing it at a really he high level a machine he yeah is, and that was a machine and, and now how long you, you've been working with him for a long time how yeah long has it been? gosh maybe 10 15 years wow yeah i have a well, great we, deal we've... of respect for uh mr springfield 
and we've mentioned that that sometimes you're you, it feels like it's longer than that and sometimes your 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 estimations on time are, yes, are that's a true. inaccurate well i think so part of that could is be the uh, the lockdown and the pandemic has really warped my sense of time like you it would is. ask me a question like oh when did that thing happen and i'll go oh well that was just a few years ago and then when you look it's like oh my gosh that was like 6 7 years ago it's yes. it's it's crazy it was a big time vacuum, absolutely. But uh, yeah, but it, it's a it's a great tune, and and you did you shot the the one of the, um, the images for the for those singles, right? Yeah, the uh, the automatic um, single. Um, my my photography partner Chris Schmidt and I um, do a lot of uh, albums uh, for artists, and we absolutely love doing it. By the way, shout out to Chris uh, Chris Schmidt. His his dad was Al Schmidt. You know, 25 Grammys, famous producer, sadly passed away uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was a couple of years ago. Um, But uh, yeah, we shot the album uh, with Rick and I've done, I don't know, maybe a half dozen albums uh, photography with Rick. And it's it's always fun because we're always trying new things. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But he's he's game for anything. It's it's a blast. Awesome. Good to hear new music from him. And, yeah, uh, very cool. I'm sure he'll be out playing that live yes, somewhere at a big venue tour coming. You. Yeah, for sure. So, and uh, we were talking about, you and I were talking about uh, Rick Beato and yes. the Nuno Betancourt video that's up right now. And, uh, you know, we're both huge fans uh-huh. of Rick Beato. I have not gotten to the Nuno yet, I but I have done um, the Daniel Lanois one, which I... I it, which is a good two hours, and then I went back and watched it again. Um, I mean, his his content that he creates, and I hate to use that sterile phrase, but it's just fantastic. Well, tell our audience who, job. if they don't know, tell them who this Rick Beato guy is. Well, he is a producer and an engineer and a songwriter, and I had seen the name around. I I, I wasn't familiar with any details about him, but I remember seeing his name, you know, related to records he's made over the years. He's based down in Atlanta, and he's, you know, we're going to talk about the boomer generation here in a minute. He is a baby boomer, and uh, he had a uh, an intern, I guess, working at his studio. And Rick had all these great stories and great insights on how records were made and these and that. And, and he was a music professor himself, so he's a really great player and plays keyboards and guitar. And the kid said, dude, you got to make a YouTube channel. And he's like, me? Why would anybody care what like an old guy like me has to say? <laughs> well, the intern said, let me show you how to do it. And he started off and he's got an unbelievably successful yeah. YouTube channel. But he and it's it really started off talking about, you know, songs and what makes this song great and another one and how stuff is done. And now but he's yet he's really delving into these very in-depth interviews with yeah. Artists and musicians and uh, uh, producers and engineers, yeah. and they are absolutely riveting if you're into it like we are. They're, they're really great. Fantastic. You don't have to be a musician. I mean, Mike and I play uh, instruments, and you don't have to play an instrument to no. appreciate. He'll break down songs and show you how they were put together. One of my favorite features he does is he'll take the top 10 uh, songs yes. of the day, and he'll kind of go through each one. And some of them are really funny. Like, is there a verse in here? Is there a chorus in here? You know, and he'll kind of break down, you know, maybe the chord structure or if one's, 
you know, a, a quote unquote real song as opposed to maybe just the sizzle on the steak. But it's it's really fascinating. And you had just touched on the uh, Nuno Betancourt, who is such an amazing guitar player mm-hmm. and I'm super high level, just so melodic. And he does so many really creative things with his uh, guitar playing. And Rick Beato recently broke down one of his later, newer songs, the solo, and he slowed it down and showed how it was played and everything. And so then he had Nuno on recently. And it was so funny because Nuno saying to him, like, you're more famous than I am, you know? And then he showed him, you know, the, what he was doing with the solo. And Nuno was like, is that all, is that all I'm doing with this thing? Um, (laughs) but Nuno's a great interview. Rick Beato is one of my favorite things, uh, to watch. And I've learned so much from watching his series and he's just, you know, so experienced in all of these different areas, like you said, in songwriting and guitar playing and production and, it, I highly recommend it. I mean, we, we just made like this episode about Rick Beato, but we just love that. And, and that Nuno Betancourt thing was two hours long and I watched the whole yeah. thing. And if you ever go on, I don't know if, if you're looking at videos on like say YouTube analytics, go look at that and see the behavior of most uh, music videos or podcasts. You'll notice that at the 32nd mark, you've lost a third, if not half of your audience, nobody has attention span anymore. So to get through a two hour thing, you know, it's gotta be pretty good. Oh, it's, it's, if, if that's your thing, it is riveting. And you know, when you and I were at Universal, actually, there was a, a British series called the Classic Album Series. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's finally ceased. Um, but, but up until fairly recently, they would, you know, have a, a number of different albums they would interview. And they'd go back in the studio and they'd listen to, you know, really how those records were made. Yes. And, and you and I both have a, a, such an interest oh, in, yeah. again, seeing how they make the sausage, how stuff is done. And it's fantastic stories. And, um, and this is kind of that that sort of same thing, but it's even more amplified for now, you know, kind of a YouTube generation. Yeah. And yeah. You learn so much. So I actually went to a taping of one of those shows uh, with rock mm-hmm. band Kiss. And it was, you know, I learned that these live albums that come out, eh, they're not really all live. They may be the basic tracks live, but they go in and they correct mistakes and they may mm-hmm. sing harmonies over it or whatever. But the funny thing I learned at the, the Kiss one that I went to is, their second live album, Kiss Alive 2, when it says you wanted the best, you got the best, and it kiss. That's not the announcer saying kiss. That's Gene Simmons who went into the studio later and multi-tracked that thing to make it bigger. So, you know, it's not fraud, it's marketing. So uh There you go. It's not fraud, <laughs> it's marketing. <laughs> Oh my well, and then you know, that's probably kind of a good lead. And there has been so much. You, I'm sure you've seen the same thing as well. You know, in the press about this kind of blowback on backing tracks in quotation marks. Uh, I know I certainly saw it mentioned about with Motley Crue, and there's been stuff with Shania Twain, and 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 sometimes Kiss. Um, you know, about what is going on when you go to one of these big mega concerts. Yeah, and is what you're hearing truly being played on stage yeah or is there something else going on i don't know any uh, of the bigger touring acts that don't use some type of you know uh track that they play along with to maybe add orchestration or to add mm -hmm. some punch or maybe some keyboard parts or you know and they do that to get all of those parts so they sound more like the record. And I really don't have a problem with that. And some of them, as they get a little bit older, 
they'll fatten up the vocals. So they still sing, but they're singing along with another track to fatten it up. And what's happened is some of these artists have been, because everybody has a video camera in their pocket, right? Their phone, and it all goes up on YouTube pretty quickly. So you're seeing these videos from these concerts where the artist will step away from the mic and you can still hear them singing. And there's been sort of a blowback um, on Shania Twain, um, which, you know, uh, we interviewed her for behind the set list, you know, her shows are incredible and she didn't want her musicians and people on stage doing a lot of dancing because as they say, if you're dancing, you're not singing, you know, you're out of mm-hmm. breath, you're not doing that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, in the video that I saw, it looked like she had used some tracks to kind of fatten some things up a little bit. It's still her voice singing there. But you can't get away with anything these days because everybody's videotaping it. That's right. Well, you know, in, in, in the day before cell phones and all that stuff, yeah, you could get away with that. And nobody would know what happened at the concert in Cleveland if you're on the West Coast or the East Coast. And it just, you know, maybe somebody talked about it or, you know, like, but there wasn't a way to go back and revisit it and see exactly what yeah. happened. But I think, you know, when you've got these gigantic stadium shows, at the very least, they're usually going to be time synced and they're usually going to have, there's no like a click track. Yeah, exactly. So they're playing to click not only for the, for the audio, but also for the production and the, and, and video content and lighting that's going on on the stage. That's got to be all synced up. Did you hear so, the Motley Crue one that was out? They released the in-ear monitor mix and you could hear the click, which is fine. A lot of people use a click track mm-hmm. to keep everybody together but it actually had a voice that announced the name of the song. So the guitar player at the time was Mick Mars. It was his monitor mix. It would say, you know, this is girls, girls, girls. And then you hear the click and you know, you could uh, enter from there. So look, I remember back in the seventies, ELO got into some hot water for using a tape to play along with. Right. And I remember going to see Queen in the late 70s. And when they get to Bohemian Rhapsody and they get to that part that we all know, they just played the tape and left the stage. And then it was a light yes. show listening because there's no way you can recreate that stuff. So there's all sorts of creative ways to do that. But I think the bottom line is today, so many people are recording these live shows on their phones. And that may have led to some of this because I went to see an artist in Nashville a few weeks ago. And the artist wasn't super happy with the the performance, um, with maybe singing uh, a little off key on a song or the the band, whatever. But here's the thing: nobody in that venue noticed because when you're live, it's about seeing them and the vibe and the electricity in the room, and you're not going, "Oh, you know, hey, guitar player, you're flatting." <laughs> you know, yes. it's no. And you listen to a board tape, and a lot of these board tapes. They're not perfect, but I like the imperfection. I really do. Yeah. And of course, one of the challenges, and I think, you know, I've talked about this before hitting record again too, was, you know, you've got a lot of these classic acts. They're still out on the road and, you know, time is not kind to singers in general. (laughs) And, 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 you know, you, the singer has the most, the the hardest job, notably typically not in a, in a, in a, in a big concert, the singer is kind of the front person as well. Yeah. And, you know, as you age, you often lose range, uh, especially on the high end. And just the rigors of touring are also just kick the asses of singers. And so you've got this kind of combination of, 
of the challenges of touring. And, and I think what you're seeing too a lot is, like you said, there's, there's, there is the singer is singing, but there's, sometimes there's also a backing track of the singer. So if the singer has to bow out for a couple of seconds or loses, you know, or can't quite hit those notes, that, that, that backing track blends in and then blends out. And so there's a lot of different ways of doing that. But I think, you know, the pressure on singers, and I've read uh, Stephen per- Steve Perry from um, Journey, uh, from Journey, from formerly of Journey, talking about that. You know, they would go out, you know, they would, in, in a lot of those bands in the day, they were making, you know, big bank on the road. So the pressure was, you know, you're doing three and four, sometimes five shows a week. I mean, it's just, plus you're traveling. It's hell on singers. Yeah. It really is. And now we have the technology to kind of take the pressure off them a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I am of two minds of that, but I also understand because, you know, like you, we, we grew up playing in bands. It's, you know, it's hard. It yeah. is hard. And if you've got a cold, the show must go on. Yeah. And that's um, just the way it is. Yeah. And so, you know, I can see how these things have developed and we'll be talking about it again in the future. And it's it's not changing. And as, as these productions get bigger and bigger and bigger, you're going to see more and more of that. Yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to touch on that just because we saw a little bit in the news. The other thing I've been reading about a lot before we jump into our stories, um, just kind of as a sidebar, and I know you've seen this too. There have been some sort of misleading headlines about uh, Paul McCartney talking about a potential new uh, Beatles song and the yeah. use of AI. And I felt like the the best source on that that really broke through you know, some of the misinformation was actually NPR Music. Um, Stephen Thompson had a, a piece this last week. Um, and, you know, he, he talked about this AI assisted song by the Beatles and he wrote, um, you may have seen the ominous headlines, you know, whipped up this past week, quote unquote, Paul McCartney says AI helped complete last Beatles song. That was from the New York times or the other headline, Paul McCartney and AI reunite the Beatles for one last song. That was USA today. And the headline, uh, Sir Paul McCartney says artificial intelligence has enabled a final Beatles song. And that was from, uh, the BBC. And he said that these headlines raise a series of haunting questions such as, ew, why? And could the world's media sources get together and come up with a consistent way to abbreviate and or punctuate AI? Oh, my goodness. Right. Well, it's and it's, of course, been in in the news cycle so much in the last couple of months. And I mean, you know, and and this is just my take. Paul McCartney is nothing if not savvy. And he has, you know, he, he knows when, when to kind of talk about things and he's, he's got great timing and recognizing what's going on. But in this case, yeah, it it is, is it AI that, that they was, was used in this process? It was, but it's not like the same AI, like fake Drake. It's not that at all. Right. But you know, we, I think we talked about either last week or two shows ago, we talked about kind of some of the wonderful things that, AI is is the tools are, are are getting better and better literally by the day to basically take uh, audio content and separate it and this was Well used, talk about uh, that like when you say take audio content and separate it explain what that means Sure well you know if, we, if let's say you there's a you, there's a song on the radio you hear and and as a keyword player I'd love to like hear exactly just maybe isolate 
elements of that song to hear it. How, what did the piano player do? What did the bass player do? With a lot of the tools now in, in AI, you, you have the ability to take that material and essentially pull out those elements. And it was used very successfully, speaking of the Beatles, in the, uh, in the Get Back series that Peter Jackson did, or the Get Back documentary that was originally called Let It Be. There was a, 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 a part in there where John and Paul were talking, and it was recorded but you couldn't really make out what they were saying. And it, and they were at that time able to use AI tools to pull out that conversation away from... Eliminate the all the noise. Chatter, a lot, all the noise. And so you could hear that conversation yeah. they were having. And that's what they did on this song. Is Paul, uh, John had done a demo tape on a cassette with either piano or guitar. And Paul wanted to just use the vocal part. So they went in and they, with AI tools, they were able to isolate that that uh, mm-hmm. vocal part of John and then incorporate it into a song. So, yeah. you know, and the Beatles did that sort of with um, back in the uh, anthology documentary in the late 90s. They had a couple of demos that, that John yep. had. One was Free as a Bird mm-hmm. and the other was uh, Real Love. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? Real yeah. Love. Um, yeah. And, uh, but they basically just played on top of that cassette demo he made. They didn't, they weren't able to, to tease out or to to isolate the elements right. of it. Like but they now can, you can now. do that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's remarkable. By the remarkable. way, this this piece, um, then we can move on. I thought it was really interesting. The The title was, Should the Beatles' Flirtation with AI Creep Us Out? <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. And, so true. You know, and they talk about AI assist. You know, This is more of an exercise in advanced remastering than a case of someone typing in the words, write a John Lennon song into chat GPT. It's, yeah. it's, it's exactly what you describe, where they're just using it to help isolate what is already there. And I, I think that's super cool. And I wish they had that technology back when they did those other songs. Well, and it's application in, you know, we talk a lot about uh, how much we like Atmos mixes of, of music. And sometimes the multi-tracks or the stems are not available to create an Atmos mix. And so if you just have a stereo recording, then maybe you can go out and pull out, isolate those elements, and then in turn use them for an Atmos mix. Yeah. So it's got some really great applications potentially. And uh, I can't wait to hear yeah, it. Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a big uh, fan exactly. of all of this technology to help uh, create music and help uh, modify music. Um, and, but we have a lot to talk about today. We and we so do. we should jump in. But before we do, let's thank our sponsors. Um, we couldn't do it without them, as you point out. And it's so true. Uh, starting off with HypeBot since 2004. HypeBot has chronicled the new music business and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton. Thank you, Bruce. Along with help from uh, Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog, Music Think Tank, are published by live music discovery and marketing platform, Bands in Town. You betcha. Bands in Town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates, 
across all platforms. So big thanks to Hypebot and bands in town. And speaking of big thanks, every week before and after the show and as we're doing the show, I get to chat with my good friend Jay Gilbert. He's a music business consultant. He's a curator, of course, of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups. And if there is a bigger Minnesota Vikings fan on the planet than Jay is, I have not met him. Wow, thank you. He is a freak about that. I, I am, and I'll just say that Drew Pearson pushed off. And if you know, you know. Uh, and, and my brother from another mother sitting over here is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music, and someone who I'm pretty sure is not AI generated. But I will tell you that I was having breakfast with my dear friend, Christina Maloche recently, and we came up with safe words to, to make sure that we're not AI generated. Um, I won't tell you what they are, but I will tell you that we have. So if I ever get a call from her and she's asking for a you know million dollars ransom or, or something, I can ask her for her, her safe word just to make sure she's not AI generated. Well, that is a very wise use of your time, Jay. Good job. Good job. All right, let's jump into the stories, Jay. How about from HypeBot? Study shows who wins and who loses if music streamers adopt user-centric payments. Wow, how timely is that? Yes, it is extremely timely. And, um, you know, it is it is a big, you know, we've been talking a lot and we will continue to be talking about the, the push to potentially change the way folks are paid with from these streaming services and yeah. uh, in this it's an extensive new study exams uh, examines I'm sh- I should say how a shift to user-centric music streaming payments will impact artists and that also when we talk about this we also have a, a new uh, acronym to talk about which is UCPS yes which is user-centric payment system so when you hear UCPS that's what it it's is it's a user-centric payment system yeah so and some people we'll call it market-centric some people call it user-centric mm-hmm. we're just going to call it UCPS user-centric payment uh, service as you just said and I will tease out, um, we have a couple of uh, special episodes coming soon. Um, one which will be dropping soon is our uh, interview with Chris Castle, who runs Music Technology mm-hmm. Policy. Uh, big brain, great guy. Um, and then another one that we just recorded, which will be coming out after that, is an interview with Will Page, former uh, Spotify chief economist, author of uh, Tarzan Economics, which the paperback is now uh, renamed to Pivot. And the reason I bring that up is Will, in our discussion, has some really interesting thoughts on user-centric versus pro rata. But but I digress. Let's talk about, this was written by Bruce Houghton, by the way, and it's based on that study, um, which we're going to kind of talk about a little bit from a, a company called Pro Music. It's a German group that represents uh, musicians, and they released a study called uh, Payment Option Transparency. Right. And they've been careful uh, to not advocate for or against a shift from the current payment model. So it kind of starts with, you know, they just want to kind of look at it and see, um, you know, what 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 the facts say about what would happen if we, we do that. And it says, of course, under current pro rata music streaming calculations, don't forget, artists are paid proportionate to their share of overall streaming volume. Yeah, but I would just interrupt for one second mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. I want to make clear, because I read this a lot, and I know their intentions are good, 
but artists are not paid. The rights holders mm. are paid. And we, we point that out yes. regularly. And some cases that is the artist, the artist but in a lot right? of cases, mm-hmm. it's the record label. So I just want to point that out that whenever I hear somebody say that streaming isn't fair to artists or they don't pay enough or they don't understand the economics of streaming, I just want everybody to understand that it's the rights holder typically that gets paid. Sorry to interrupt. Good point. Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. That's an important point to cover for sure. So some of the key findings in this uh, were, were really interesting. So almost one in three artists could increase their revenue by at least 40% in the major countries if we make that switch. Uh, they say almost one in five artists could at least double their income. And that is not insignificant. And then they also point out more than a third of artists could lose 40% or more of their income. So yeah. when you give it, you, you have to take it away as well. Right. It's a pie and we're, mm-hmm. we're making the slices different sizes, but the pie is staying the same, you know, the pizza pie is staying the same size. Yeah. So, um, now I'm getting hungry. Um, Bruce points out from this report that there are three factors that determine kind of who wins and who loses, right? So beyond the debate about what is fair, every artist and label, they want to know if they will be a winner or a loser, you know, if you shift from pro rata to UCPS, okay? The new study offers sort of the clearest answers that we've seen so far. The stats showed three characteristics that directly determine which artists will benefit from user-centric. Number one, user reach. Number two, user commitment. And number three, average user spend. Right, exactly. So they say, of course, instead of only considering the number of streams, an artist will make more money under UCPS if they have many fans who spend much of their time listening to that artist content and are willing to contribute the most money to the system. Yeah, yeah. This is what we've thought all along because we hear experts on both sides saying that if you switch, it's not going to be any different. And then there's some that say if you switch, it's going to be very different. And I think the truth is kind of in the middle. As this report points out, there are winners and losers, and does it make sense? I think it's really interesting to note Um, there's some really great research being done right now. Like let's take SoundCloud, for example, with, Mm -hmm. you know, with their fans platform and they're using this user centric system. And I know some of the majors like WIA and universal are doing tests with this. They want to know who's going to be, you know, who's going to benefit and who's not going to benefit from this stuff. So I find all of this, Super interesting. And I thought Bruce broke it down perfectly. And one of the things he points out is that the per fan spend um, would be measured in subscription revenue, but could be expanded to include premium subscription tiers and new payment schemes that include tipping, merch sales. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this one of the things that we learned from from talking with Will, and I can't wait for you to hear this episode, is that we look at two reports to kind of judge the health of the music industry, right? The IFPI Mm -hmm. report, which is worldwide and RIAA, which is us. And what Will does is he takes other aspects of the industry and puts them in. So it's not just 
recorded music and sync and some of these other things. So I highly encourage you to take a look at that. But the other thing, before we kind of move on here, there's a great report that's linked to in his piece here, and it's the full report, Payment Option Transparency from Pro Music. They have an executive summary. Um, If you don't want to read through the whole report, they have some really interesting charts and graphs. But this is sort of the best report that I've seen to date on uh, the pros and cons of user-centric. Yeah, it's great. It's a really very detailed, in-depth, follow the link from Hypebot. Um, but yeah, it's it's fantastic. And um, listen, this stuff is really heating up. And I, 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 you can just feel, you know, change potentially afoot. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. And I think we're going to really be talking a lot about this as you know, universal and the majors kind of are, are, like you said, examining different ways of doing this. And, and even if in the end it's kind of a hybrid a, or oh, yeah, something new, but I, th- but I think it's important to do it, you know, and sometimes it may not, it may not be a super win, but it's the right thing to do. And it, it, to me, it feels like it's the right thing to do to move towards this. But again, how you do it and what the details are, that is where, as they say, the devil is. And yeah, and it's going to be a, a lot of back and forth, yeah. a lot of conversations. But uh, yeah. it feels like the earth is certainly shaking. Things are changing. Or will be Absolutely. Be changing, so. Well, here's another one. Let's jump over to this next story from Billboard. Hate Ticketmaster, love Taylor Swift. Politicians are backing new bills to get your vote. Well, you never see that, Jake. Uh, politicians kind of jumping onto bandwagons and well you just hit it on the head right in that kind of sub headline you know they're backing new bills to get your vote and my problem is that like let's take tiktok for example there was such an uproar about tiktok and that's fine if you want to debate the facts but all the things that i was reading was from politicians who had either never used the platform, they didn't understand how it works, they didn't know what data was stored on what servers where, and so you and I broke down a story in your morning coffee about the truth behind that. And let's start with this one. So this is in Billboard, it was written by Steve Knopper, and I I think Steve Knopper is absolutely amazing. Um, I first uh, got to know him when I I read his book, Appetite for Self-Destruction, the yeah. spectacular crash of the record business in the digital age. Still my, my favorite book on the music industry, partially because you and I were in some of those meetings that they talk about yep. and it's just, it hit really close to home and it was so accurate and it was just a great book. And I, I actually got, uh, he did another version of it with an extra chapter later and I bought that too. But, um, I had him on the music biz weekly podcast. I, I reach out to him periodically, but I love his, his writing. Uh, and he's a billboard editor at large. He used to write for Rolling Stone. He wrote the uh, biography of uh, Michael Jackson, the genius of Michael Jackson back in 2015, but a uh, super talented writer. And when I saw this article pop up and it said by Steve Knopper, you know, that byline, I reached out to him um, because I knew he was going to do the research. You know, he's like Glenn Peoples or one of those people. They don't just report on what's going on or somebody's opinion. They actually do the research and he did on this. So let's listen into a little bit of my conversation with Steve Knopper. Steve, thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. I always get super excited when I see your byline. And this last week I saw this article in Billboard, great piece, titled, Hate Ticketmaster, love Taylor Swift, 
politicians are backing new bills to, to get your vote. And you break down a lot of this in, in a really great way, you know, a lot of this proposed legislation. So what are some key takeaways or what did you learn? Well, I learned that, I mean, the first broad takeaway is that a lot of fans right now are upset and they're upset about the, the Taylor Swift debacle in not being able to get the tickets. They're upset about the Bruce Springsteen thing that happened last year, you know, where, where his tickets went into the secondary market and, and went up in price by a lot. Um, although that's kind of that situation has changed a bit since then. And they're upset about, you know, Robert Smith from The Cure, who's saying, you know, we have these service fees that we can't do anything about and and they're not fair and so forth. And so constituents of various important politicians, whether on the state level or whether, you know, on the in the in the U.S. Congress level um, are complaining. And so what I think senators representatives state and and national are figuring out is that if they sort of make this create this legislation and propose it in their various legislatures they can get political points you know they can say to to fans in their states in their constituencies and say we're going after these ticket sellers we're going after this unfair process president biden recently even lumped in ticket sellers with, you know, what he criticized in his State of the Union address as junk fees. So it's a little bit of a of a political button you can push and apparently get get votes. We'll see. And the other thing is that a lot of these these senators and reps are tying themselves to the most popular tour in the country right now, which is the Taylor Swift Eras tour. There's the bill out of Massachusetts is even kind of, you know, slyly nicknamed the Taylor Swift bill. So, you know, they're, they're going after the Swifty market too. And if it's not the Swifties themselves who are voting, many of them are old enough to vote for sure. Um, it's also their parents. So, so it's, it's pretty smart politics, but I also wonder if it reflects a real knowledge on the part of the, of the legislators on how the concert business works, which is, as you and I both know is, is, is much more complicated than it certainly seems to the naked eye. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because recently there's been an uproar about TikTok and you read about these politicians and some of them have never used the platform. They don't understand the platform. They don't know where the data is stored from the platform. Are you finding that there are some politicians who really have done the research and understand what these fees are and who's participating in these fees? Or is it just piling on for political gain? I mean, I think it's a case by case basis. When I spoke to the the senator and the representative in Massachusetts, for example, who are proposing, you know, a, a very simple, basic bill which makes common sense about sort of getting rid of the service fees and, and making it more transparent, just having an all in one price, um, totally makes sense on the surface. But when I started asking them, you know, have you talked to people in the concert business about how complicated this is and how there, there's a lot more than meets the eye? I mean, I'm I'm not saying I'm not making a comment here whether it's fair or unfair, but there is more than meets than than meets the sure. eye. And and the response I got from them was sort of, yeah, well, we're working on that. We're we're having meetings and we're talking to Ticketmaster folks, and you know, we're 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 getting up to speed on this. So there is a process that has to be done, and I think people are at different levels of it. I think Senator Klobuchar, for example, is pretty smart, and I think she understands how everything works. Um, but there there is a simplification process, getting into sort of 
you know, ancillary fees and venues and guaranteed contracts and blah, 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 which yeah. is, is the, the secret sauce of the concert business. Um, you know, it's, it's not as easy as just saying, you know, service charges suck. Right. Do you think some of this is theater or do you think that some meaningful uh, changes will come about because of some of this legislation? I think a little bit of A and a little bit of B. Um, I do think some of it is theater for sure. When you say we're, you know, we're putting out the Taylor Swift bill and we're going to help these Swifties get justice when they go to pay for their tickets, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think there is a bit of theater involved in that for sure. Um, But I do think, for example, the the Klobuchar um, Blumenthal bill in Congress, they are talking about limiting the duration of the exclusive contracts that um, that Ticketmaster or that I shouldn't say Ticketmaster, I should say all the ticket sellers have with various venues. Um, and and they're getting into it. You know, they they seem to really be getting into kind of the guts of how the concert business works. And I do think there is there is some idea of reform there. And then that speaks to the Live Nation and Ticketmaster merger. Is it unfair? Is it a monopoly? You know, we could go down the rabbit hole on that. But, sure. but uh, you know, Senator Klobuchar, I spoke with her and, and she seems like she knows what's going on with that stuff for sure. Great. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate you popping on and uh, helping us understand that a little bit better. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I always love it. Good piece. Yeah. yeah. Good piece. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about his article. You, you, now you've heard sort of his view on, you know, is some of this theater, is some of this actually policy change? I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Mike, because um, Mike Brandvold and I did a podcast this week just about the announcement that some of these ticketing fees were going to move from the end of the transaction to the beginning. And Biden mentioned it. A lot of people mentioned it. And Mike and I called each other and said, big whoop. Like, what are you talking about? This isn't reform. This isn't transparency. This, this is just theater. And some of it is, and some of it, as you'll read in this article, is actual reform for the industry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just personally, I mean, I, I do think it'd be, it, there is nothing more galling than when you're buying tickets and then you get that surprise at the end. And and so it isn't a big deal to move it to the front, but I would prefer to see it at the front, all things being equal. Um, But, you know, I think, and we, you know, we talked a lot about all these fees and stuff uh, just a, you know, a couple of months back when this was kind of blowing up in the news again. Mm -hmm. And as we sort of, you know, when you, when you look closely, it's easy to rag on Ticketmaster because they are kind of the, 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 the entity that is really easy to hate. But the reality is it's nuanced. And most of the things that Ticketmaster does are at the behest of the artists. And, and a lot of that stuff benefits the artist as well as Ticketmaster. So, you know, it's, it's so easy. And, and when you enter politics and, 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 and uh, politicians into the mix, it makes everything, it just really muddies the water. How can you say that? It really that? does. Yeah. yeah no, can you, shocking to hear I that. I can't believe you're saying that. You're, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's so much of politics is theater. And I mean, he kicks off his article by talking about Senator Ted Cruz uh, from Texas. Um, but that he and even some liberal Democrats have two things in common, you know, perhaps only two. They hate the way concert and sports 
ticket sales work, specifically the company selling most of them, Ticketmaster, right? They're, they're the easy target. And they love Taylor Swift, right? But mm-hmm. one of the things that you and I have kind of uh, dug deep into, and I would love to reach out to Michael Rapino uh, from Live Nation to see if he would talk to us, because um, I sent you the transcription of his interview with Bob Lefsetz and they go through and they break down a lot of these fees and where they come from. And you learn things like, you know, ticket prices are set by the artists typically through their managers, you know, and they get a a lion's share of that revenue. And there are all sorts of fees that are involved And the dirty little secret is that a lot of these fees, the artists are participating in and then complaining about. And I would just like, you know, like we always say, there's three sides to every story. Uh, thank you, Ricky Warwick. You know, yours, mine, and the truth. And I don't think moving the fees to the front is the solution. I think it's looking into what these fees are and having some transparency into them. Um, and and I really love this article um, because Steve kind of points out that there are some very deliberate and smart people who are looking into this and really trying to affect change. Exactly. But also kind of mixed into this, as the article said, a lot of this was kind of kicked off by, you'll recall back in November when like about 100,000 fans were kicked out of the sales queue. Mm-hmm. And so for Taylor Swift now, and I t- and for Taylor Swift's shows exactly when they went on sale and now that was certainly annoying, and that was that was a bummer for for fans. And my my daughter was in that queue and getting kicked out at the time. And and to say she was bummed out was was an understatement. However, you know, again, and we talked about it at the time, I think, which was you know supposedly Ticketmaster said, hey, this is really uncharted territory to put all these shows on sale at once. And, you know, we've been in the room with artists where artists want what they want, and sometimes there's no talking sense into it, and that could have been what was going on with this. So that, in fact, is even a separate issue to the prices of tickets and fees and things like that. So again, this sort of muddying of the waters of issues, uh, I think, is... um, you know, you just got to know what what's really going on and right. and kind of separate the important things. But it is important to be talking about it. And but of course, now that a lot of these uh, senators and there's there's federal legislation being talked about and even state legislation here in California, um, yeah, we've got a lot to kind of parse. And there's a lot going on. There's a several different uh, things that that are being uh, sponsored and that are being kind of kind of talked about and right. one of which is is the the Senator Amy uh, Klobuchar who's a Democrat in Minnesota and Richard Blumenthal who's a Democrat in Connecticut they want to uh, they want to un, uh, improve competition among ticket sellers particularly Ticketmaster which according to its sponsors has a 70 to 80 percent market share and is guilty of clear excesses and abuses they say this bill would authorize the Federal Trade Commission to prevent excessively long exclusive contracts and open the market to more ticket-selling companies. Right. Uh, that's the Unlocking Tickets Marketing Act that is proposed in the U.S. Senate. Right. Okay. But, however, you know, limiting, and this is something that Steve points out in this article, is that limiting long-term guaranteed contracts could be costly to venues. In that scenario, yes. venues' exclusive ticketing rights, typically valued between six and seven figures annually, would drop to zero. To make up for that loss, they could wind up raising service charges even higher. Quote, if we get rid of those contracts, 
then there's a cost to pay, says Luke Frobe uh, from Vanderbilt University. He uh, chaired a uh, professor who was chief economist at the uh, FTC from 2003 to 2005. He said, we're going to see less investment in the theaters up, up front. And, and see, that's the thing. With all of these changes, there's a ripple effect. Um, yep. But I think the bottom line with a lot of this is there, there's some political gain for some of these things. And then there's some things that will actually help affect change in the industry. But this is a complex issue. It's not as simple as what they call junk fees. That's just a, a term thrown out by politicians to make all these fees seem like they're unnecessary. And I think you need to dig into what these fees are paying for before mm -hmm. you say that they're unnecessary. And then the bottom line is it's really challenging today when you have supply and demand. There's no way there's enough supply for Taylor Swift. The, the demand is That's too right. great. And to put Absolutely. all of those on sale in one day, to have all these bots going in and trying to buy tickets as well. There's so many challenges with that. I mean, you and I were talking about uh, this piece where all of these fans were going to these venues uh, that Taylor Swift was playing and just being in the parking lot, just catching the vibe and singing along and being with other fans. I, I wish there were the venues and, you know, the capacity for all of these fans. But the problem with that is basic uh, marketing in that you have a ton of supply and very limited demand. You're going to have high ticket prices. Yes, yes. And, you know, in much the same way as the story we were talking about with the, the potential adoption of user-centric payments, which is, yes, it, it you know, there, there, is a, there is an equal and opposite reaction to anything that you do in, this, in these areas. And um, there's, there's not things you do and there is no repercussions on the backside of things. So, and the money is just so gigantic, Massive. but you know, as you, as it's, it's, you know, the touring world is just on fire and, and it's going to get bigger, just, Mike, because people want that premium experience. They want to sit up yes. front. They want to meet the band and get their photo taken because that's currency today with social media they want to go on a cruise with their favorite artist they want that personal experience they want a corporate gig yeah. whatever it is this is only going to get um bigger and bigger revenue wise and the last thing i'll say on this piece which you really need to check this out because steve has done such a great job of breaking this down but there was another piece of legislation that he talked about the boss and swift act or better oversight of stub sales and strengthening well-informed and fair transactions for audiences of Concert Ticketing Act. That's a mouthful. And that was proposed in the U.S. House by Representatives uh, Bill Pascrell, a uh, Democrat from New Jersey, and Frank Pallone, or Poloni, uh, Jr., a Democrat from New Jersey. And just the focus of it would require ticket sellers to disclose the total cost, including fees, from the first time a ticket price is displayed and any time thereafter. Well, again, is that a solution or is it theater? I mean, is that, is that really going to fix anything? So I don't know. What do you think? Well, of course, there's an opponent to that, and that is the organization Fix the Ticks Coalition, led by the National Independent Venue Association. They say that it would actually increase ticket prices, enshrine deceptive practices like speculative tickets, and cause an even worse ticket-buying experience for true fans. 
So again, the equal and opposite reaction, you know, it's, and to be honest, when I read these things, I'm like, oh, you just want to throw your hands up and say, oh, whatever. I mean, it's, it can't be fixed or it's not going to be fixed. Or even if you fix it, it's not really fixed. It's just those things have moved to some other vertical, some other way of getting paid. So it is really a a head scratcher, a head, a head spinner, because I mean, it's just, there's a lot of things that could be done and there's mixed in with theater of politicians jumping in and it's, it's just kind of a mess, Jay. Well, leave it at that. Look, we're at least getting some uh, knowledge about it now. uh, Thanks Mm -hmm. to people like Steve Knopper. Um, so I highly encourage you to check out that piece in Billboard, and we'll continue to report on this. Um, but in the interest of time, we need to jump to our last story, and this is by Russ Krupnik uh, from Music Watch. And the, the headline is, it really surprised me. And let me just back up a little bit. I saw Russ at um, the Music Biz Conference, and I watched one of his presentations, and then I, I met him for coffee, and it was enlightening. Um because he's doing a lot of the research and yes, there are places out there like media who does really great research. And, but I, I love his take on a lot of things because sometimes he'll take things that we read in the news and sort of take for granted, like he did this week. The headline is boomers aren't saving music subscriptions anytime soon. And the common misconception was we've been reading all these articles that said that you know, these baby boomers, they're going to, once they lock into paying for subscriptions, our whole music industry is going to grow exponentially. So right. I had a chance this morning to, to, to sit down with Russ and talk about this. Let's, let's listen to that discussion. Cause I think that'll set up this piece beautifully. This is Russ Krupnik. Russ, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining me. A, uh, a must read from your morning coffee this last Friday was your insightful piece titled boomers aren't saving music subscriptions anytime soon. And you point out that there are 52 million internet using boomers in the U S but only about 16% of them pay for a music subscription. That really surprised me. You know, I've read reports that suggest that this group will be the next big wave of growth for paid music streaming, but that's not really what your research shows. Tell us about that. Right. Well, the piece was actually um, created because I probably read the same articles that you did. And, you know, I think marketers, marketers, analysts, reporters are always looking for the the next silver bullet, especially as streaming growth has started to slow down. And, you know, when you see such surprisingly small penetration or purchasing of subscriptions among the boomer group, which, you know, I'm part of, and we always kind of, we label ourselves as music's greatest generation. Um, (laughs) You you kind of go, well, you point to that and you go, well, there's got to be a lot of growth there, isn't there? Uh, But in the research that we did in January, we dug into those kinds of questions a little bit deeper. And one of the things that we learned was that uh, roughly around 90% of those boomers who aren't paying for a subscription don't have any intent to pay for a subscription, at least in the coming year. And my guess is if you're not going to, if you're 90% not disposed, you're probably 90% not disposed for the year after uh, as well. So 
that was kind of, you know, we just wanted to put some of the other work that had been published into some level of contact. Yeah, I think, you know, one, one of the other things, Jay, is I, I guess kind of two other points I'd like to leave your, your audience with is, um, you know, some out there might ask, well, well, why not? You know, why, why aren't boomers uh, kind of running to sign up for subscriptions? And, you know, one of the things that we saw is that they're, they're pretty happy campers when it comes to the options that they have, whether it's free streaming services, whether it's uh, AM, FM radio that they grew up with, whether it's their CD and download collection. Um, so I think, you know, one, the interesting thing also is they're like 50% more likely to subscribe to Sirius than they are to an on-demand subscription. So, you know, there may be some gold in those hills. We may just, the industry may just kind of have to figure out how, how do you mine it a little bit better and in a sense, the way that Sirius has. I guess you and I are anomalies uh, for the boomer age group in that we love discovering new music. We love digital service providers and we want to uh, subscribe and pay for a service. I, I mean, personally, I just love the fact that virtually all of the music that I grew up listening to is available. And these days, as I spend way too much time on you know Netflix and Apple TV and, and, and on video on demand services, every time I hear a track that I haven't heard in 20 or more years, I run right to, I Shazam it, and I run right to the streaming service, and there it is. And I'm, you know, that's on the top of my playlist for a week. So for me, the experience is yeah. just, you know, it's just yeah, marvelous. That's great. Well, Russ, thanks again for joining me. Let's continue the conversation. Love to have you back on to kind of break these things down for the audience so we understand it a little bit better. Terrific. Well, thank you for the invite, and I'd love to come back and talk some more about this topic and more. And Russ, of course, is at NYU and an adjunct professor there. And so interesting to get his take. And of course, just, just so everyone remembers, so uh, the boomer generation was from 1946 to 1964. So the young or the yeah, the youngest boomers are now 59 years old. So that gives you an idea of kind of what the area we're talking about is. And um, this article in Music Watch says, you know, as growth in the number of paid music streaming subscriptions slows in the U.S., some have theorized that baby boomers are the key to unlocking more paying customers. Again, so that's people that are 59 to in their late 70s now. So are they really going to be the, the key to unlocking a lot more we paying customers. It, it, it made sense, I suppose. You know, it says it'd be, it had been, that had been uh, popular talk about that. Uh, this notion started after analysts la- uh, latched onto the low levels of subscription penetra- penetration for boomers, which was described in various research reports. Uh, here is a similar data from Music Watch's annual music study, and it too shows that boomers are woefully underrepresented when it comes to paying for music streaming subscriptions. Considering there are 52 million internet-using boomers in the U.S., and only about 16% or 8 million roughly pay for a subscription, you'd have to agree that there's a lot of unplowed territory among this age group. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe. Yeah, well, as he you know, spoke to me about there's, you know, like 90% of those folks are not 
going to pay for a music streaming service. And which is crazy because we're on that far end of that boomer uh, group and we love music. We love discovering new music. We love DSPs. I can't imagine my life without a digital service provider, you know, like an Apple, you know, Spotify, Amazon, whatever. I need that in my life, that access to stuff. But what Russ told me was that, you know, for a lot of these guys, the radio in their car is fine. And if they like music Mm -hmm. a little bit more, you know, maybe Sirius XM and they're good to go. They don't necessarily need what, what you and I do. Right, right. So they say only 10% indicated they were likely to pay to subscribe to an audio service in the coming year. And he, uh, the, this study goes on to say, we know from experience that when push comes to shove, many of these so-called likely subscribers, they won't actually sign up. And like you were saying, sometimes good is good enough. They're not necessarily, they, they're getting music somehow elsewhere. And then they the, the article says, well, who then? Deeper analysis shows that mining the younger demographic would provide a greater return on investment than trying to convince baby boomers to pay. And they, they show a chart here. It says, as the chart above shows, the younger demographic has a large proportion who still do not pay, and the likelihood of converting them is much better. See, that was surprising to me. So basically what he's saying is that us boomers, we're a lost cause. Forget about you're not gonna get these guys. You might get ten percent of them. But some <laughs> of these says the same thing. You know, some of that. these Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, whatever, that's that's where you're gonna see the growth. I thought that was super interesting. And and the final thought on this is he said, you know, are boomers a lost cause? And he said, not necessarily. You know, boomers boomers have shown a willingness to pay for subscriptions, just not on the on-demand type. You know, they subscribe to Amazon Prime. They listen to Prime Music. They're 50% more likely to have a serious XM subscription than an on-demand subscription. I thought that was really surprising. And in addition to music, Sirius offers a plethora of content, including news, sports, you know, all of that other stuff. So perhaps attracting boomers means a content play. You know, maybe it's a pricing play. Would a tiered pricing scheme appeal to the more casual uh, boomer music listeners. So the final thought is that, you know, three out of four boomers now stream music. It's worth a look to see how many more could be converted to paid subscribers, but it's highly unlikely they will change the growth trajectory of subscriptions in the short term. So uh, I know we mentioned, you know, that he's a professor, but Russ is a managing partner of Music Watch, which we report on regularly. And if you don't know, Music Watch is a a really great company dedicated to marketing research, industry analysis uh, for music and the entertainment business. So, Russ, thank you so much for joining us. And we will definitely have uh, Russ pop on from time to time to kind of enlighten us and to add some clarity to some of these things that we're reading. Yeah. And as I'm looking at this, you know, I'm thinking back to our interview with Will Page that we still have where we will be releasing, um, you know, him looking at kind of the overall uh, where he, you know, we, he, he pulls in a lot of different numbers to kind of really calculate the value of the business of music. And this is kind of another thing. It's like, you know, this generation, the baby boomers are spending money and they are they are listening to music, but it's just in a different way. It's not necessarily directly from streaming. So, right. so I think you know the way Will Page looks at this kind of overarching, uh, a little more holistic uh, universe, a more holistic exactly. That uh, that's kind of how we maybe start to analyze. It's like okay, they're getting their consumption 
from over here and from over here, not just yeah. in the obvious ways. So, yeah, uh, yeah much, a fascinating way of looking at a lot of this stuff. So on that note, we do need to wrap up episode number 149. We're marching towards our third anniversary, which, <laughs> man, it blows my mind. Wow. Uh, we do want to thank, of course, Hypebot and Bands in Town for bringing us to the show, bringing us to the party, I should say, every week. We really appreciate yeah. those folks, and we could not do it without them. And I want to thank my brother Jay for uh, uh, for being always the entertaining and thought provoking <laughs> and just thank a you, brother, dude. And of course, yes, and thanks to the audience, you all that listen in. Boy, Jay and I do not take it for granted at all, and we uh, we thank you all from the bottom of our hearts. So, on that note, have a great week, everyone. We will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. <laughs> You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.